This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta. Seeks to be defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon Church, again, we are excited to be able to worship together. I hope you've enjoyed the worship thus far. And uh, we've, we've been just really trying to figure out what it means to love each other well, to continue to follow Jesus well, what it means to literally follow him when we can't be around each other in person. Uh, and so as we've gone through the book of John, Jesus has really been showing us what it means to follow him. Now, we have a lot of ideas of what it means to follow Jesus. We, sometimes they come from scripture, many times they don't. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of times we will create our own ideas of what it means to follow Jesus. And then we will parade those things out in public and almost thump our chest in showing how we follow Jesus. One way we do that is through a form that is incredibly annoying to me. Uh, and that is what I like to call bumper sticker theology. We love to put our ideas about who Jesus is and we'll put them on the back of our cars and we love to tell people about just who we are in Jesus. And many times we are communicating something that Jesus himself does not. Here's an example. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a a car that's in front of you that has a, a certain sticker that will say this, warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Now, regardless of what your eschatological views are, whether you believe the rapture, how the rapture will work or what have you, I don't know if you realize what that really communicates. In many ways, that's just us going, warning, my joy may result in your death. Like, I don't think we think that through, but it really doesn't communicate what you think that it is. I saw another one that said, KJV forever. So basically, in case you're curious about what my particular choices are for Bible versions, now you know, and I'm glad that you know just how much I love my KJV. Uh, Here's another one. Honk if you love Jesus. This one is one that is super annoying because usually those are the ones that will cut you off showing no love for the neighbor. It really gives a really hard and incorrect view of who Jesus is. And finally, one that is incredibly popular. Jesus or God is my co-pilot. Now, this one is not just annoying and, you know, this is just my own perception. If you have uh, those things on your car, grace and peace to you. No judgment outside of this judgment of you. Uh, But in a nutshell, it can be incredibly bad theology. In many ways, this idea of Jesus, God being our co-pilot, Uh, is really bad theology. Now, in order for us to drill down into that, what do we mean when we use the word co-pilot? What do we mean when we say that Jesus is my co-pilot? Well, that depends on how you understand what a co-pilot actually is. As many of you know, I spent several years in the United States Air Force as a weather forecaster. And so what that meant is I would work uh, side by side with pilots in order to give them briefings, depending on what their flight plan was. So if they were getting ready to fly, I, I briefed pilots in places like Alaska, places like Iraq, places like Kuwait. There's all different terrain. There's all different atmospheric conditions that you have to think through. And so I would have to work closely with them, give them a flight plan, helping them to know how to be able to accomplish those missions. Now, I made friends with several pilots, some of which are now airline pilots. They've gotten out of the military, either they they got out early or they retired. And one of the things I remember from most of my pilot friends is how annoyed they would get with the way that people would use the word co-pilot. There would be people that would leave a flight and they would say things like, man, the pilot did a really good job, to which an experienced pilot would respond with, well, which one? Because the idea that people often have is that a co-pilot, their role is that of a less experienced apprentice to the real pilot. And so when we have that idea, there are folks that would have that idea to go, this is the pilot that maybe they're not as skilled or they're not trained as well, or they don't have enough time, enough flying hours. So they're just the co-pilot. Eventually they'll earn their way up to real pilot, right? And when in in fact, uh, every single cockpit has at least two pilots. And actually, the, the, the formal phrases they use are captain and first officer. 
Co-pilot is more of a colloquial phrase that's used, but usually you have a captain and you have a first officer. Now understand, uh, there, there is not necessarily a skill difference between the captain and the first officer. In many cases, the first officer has as much flying time, if not more, than the actual captain, right? Because they both have the same amount of uh, training, they both have the same uh, competencies, they both have the same expectations, they both can fly the plane equally well. The only difference is, uh, in most airlines, they will, give you, they will confer this idea of captain or this label, this title of captain on you when you have a certain amount of seniority with the company. So you might have a person who was a captain for Southwest Airlines and they move to Delta. Well, they don't have the same seniority at Delta. They may have more flying hours than everybody there, but they have to start as a first officer. Why are we getting into the weeds about that? Because depending on how you understand co-pilot, whether you understand it um, incorrectly or whether you understand it correctly, you still will have the wrong view of Jesus if you think he's a co-pilot. If you think that Jesus is, if you think of co-pilots, maybe even in the right sense, someone who is equally capable of flying a plane, the problem with saying Jesus is my co-pilot is you still think of yourself as the pilot. See, the pilot in, in, in most airplanes, their job is to have the final say in decision making. They have the same skill set, but they may have to have the, the final say in whatever the certain decisions are that have to be made. So what you're saying is that you are capable of making the final decision, but you invite Jesus in to give you some input. That is not what it means to follow. That is not what it means to be a sheep. That is not what it means to look at Jesus as a shepherd. And ultimately, the passages that we've been looking at, Jesus uses a metaphor. He doesn't use pilot and, 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 and co-pilot kind of thing because they didn't have those then. Uh, but what, what he does use is this idea of shepherd and sheep. And what he's showing us is that in the same way that you should not view yourself as pilot or co-pilot, you actually should view yourself as a passenger. We're not pilots or co-pilots at all. We are not the captains of our own ships. We are passengers on the ship. In, the same, in that same vein, Jesus is talking to these leaders and saying, you are not shepherds, you are sheep. And if you were my sheep, you would know my voice. If he were talking to us today, if you were actually a passenger on my plane, you would hear my voice. But you can't be a passenger if you think you're the pilot. You can't be a passenger if you believe yourself to be the co-pilot. And, and, and the other thing is, many times what people will do then is, they will know that. They will know that that bumper sticker theology isn't right. So they'll try to create corrective bumper sticker theology. And so write something else that says, well, if Jesus is your co-pilot, it's time to switch seats. Well, that also creates a big problem, right? That's bad theology as well, because ultimately, Jesus doesn't need our input on any decisions that are made. Jesus doesn't need our input on how to fly the plane. Jesus doesn't need our input when he needs to take a break, take a nap so that we can take over, and fly, uh, uh, take over a flight that's 14 hours, 16 hours. Jesus doesn't need that. If anything, he's the only one that doesn't need a first officer, doesn't need a co-pilot. And if you really want to get deep and preachy, he's not just the pilot, he's the plane. But we're not going to go there because I don't want to preach for three hours. Here's what we need to do. We're going to look at this text and we're going to dig into what it means for, for us to see ourselves not as shepherds, not as the ones who make the final decision, not as those who invite Jesus in. But how do we see ourselves as those who have been invited in by Jesus? And because we've been invited in, we actually adhere to his will. We submit ourselves to his wisdom. We submit our lives to the good shepherd. It's important that we see that because ultimately, if you see Jesus as your co-pilot, you're seeing yourself as more capable than you are. And so we need to get to a place where we figure out what does it mean to truly know Jesus as a real shepherd, as our real pilot, and we see ourselves as those who are in the field, as those that are just passengers. Listen, if you believe Jesus is your co-pilot, you may be in the same airport as Jesus. You might even be at the same gate as Jesus, but you are not on his plane. You may be a sheep in the same field, but you are not in his flock. So with that said, let's get into the scriptures. Uh, click or turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. 
I did tell you, and you, did, you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called those whom the word of God came to gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing the works, but if I, but sorry, but if I'm doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way, you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Then they were trying again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. So he departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. Many came to him, and he said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot in this text, and there's a lot for us to dig into. A lot of it it harkens back to much of the conversation we've been having about who Jesus is. Jesus has been using this metaphor now for a few chapters, what it means to be a sheep and a shepherd and to see him as the good shepherd. So by, by way of recap, we remember that Jesus, in contrast to the Pharisees who are blind thieves and, and robbers who are not looking out for the good of God's sheep, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, the one who knows, the one who loves the sheep. He's the good shepherd who intimately knows his sheep and his sheep know him. They hear his voice. They follow him. Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the one who possesses the authority to not only lay his life down, but to take up his life again. So he's made this proclamation and following that proclamation, there ends up being this division among the Jews. They're having arguments amongst themselves. They don't realize who he is yet. Some people think that he has a demon and somebody else is saying, no, he can't have a demon because demons can't open the eyes of the blind. So some people are looking past the works of Jesus and saying that Jesus must be insane, but others have interpreted the words of Jesus through the works that he's done. They haven't just said, I hear what he said. They said, I see what he's done. And if I can just look at the work that he's done, that's the lens through which I will believe him. And this takes us to verse 22. Now, we don't know the time frame between 21 and 22. We know the, the scriptures aren't clear exactly. We just know that there was yet another feast that was going on. It's known as the Feast of Dedication. As the scripture says here, it says the Festival of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Uh, history tells us that this was during our month of December. Uh, the Feast of Dedication uh, actually goes back to a time uh, roughly around 167 B.C., uh, the, feast of, uh, the Festival of Dedication uh, was uh, something that was actually to commemorate this incredible event that occurred. So when you go back to 167, the temple in Jerusalem had been desecrated. And by desecrated, I mean that the things that made the temple holy, those things had been undone. There was a leader by the name of Antiochus IV. And Antiochus wanted the Jews to worship their Greek pantheon, to worship their Greek gods. And he wanted to force them to, to, to worship anybody other than Yahweh, anybody other than Jehovah. So what he did was he forced them to do pig sacrifices in the temple. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament law, you know anything about Jewish law, old, uh, pigs were looked at as unclean. And so you would never slaughter a pig, especially in the temple. And Antiochus would force them to slaughter pigs in the temple. He would force them to not be circumcised. He would force them to do things that would render the temple unholy. He would force them to do what back in the day they would call pagan practices, things that were sinful, things that were against the very heart and the very law of God. And so he would force them to do these things and people were just frustrated. 
because for roughly about three years, they were getting accustomed to having to just desecrate the temple. And then they were forced to worship the God, the Greek God, Zeus. And so you, you have to understand the backdrop here. You're, you're talking 167 BC, folks who have been worshiping in the temple all this time have been forced to stop. They're yearning for the temple to be restored. They're yearning for purity to be brought back. They're yearning for the freedom to worship Jehovah again. And then three years later, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, Judas Maccabeus comes in and he ends up being this incredible savior figure for them because Judas comes in and he reclaims the temple and purifies it again. He pushes away the troops of Antiochus IV, his army that he leads, retakes over Jerusalem, retakes over the temple. They cleanse the temple. They purify the temple. They get rid of all the different idols. They begin to worship again. And then they have their first sacrifice, holy sacrifice that they offer to Yahweh for the first time in three years. And so to commemorate the time that they got to purify the temple and celebrate, they started celebrating something that we know as Hanukkah. And that's the reason why Hanukkah is celebrated roughly around our Christmas time, because it was in December that that time actually happened. And so this is what's happening right now. This festival is being celebrated. At this point, what has it been? Almost 200 years since this happened. And so Jesus is uh, going there to celebrate uh, the, this festival. Again, you won't find this festival anywhere in the Old Testament because those things didn't even occur until 167 BC. So you won't look in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You won't find any rules on how to celebrate Hanukkah or celebrate the festival of dedication because it hadn't occurred yet. But that's why Jews all around the world to this day will take time to light candles to remember the light that was restored back to the temple, to remember what it meant to see that battle that transpired, the battle to regain the temple again. They would reflect on how God had delivered them from darkness, delivered them from oppression, and how the temple was restored. Why does that matter? I hope you see the irony in this. It's this poetic irony where you look at Jesus and, and they're celebrating this time where a deliverer showed up to bring purification of the temple. And now you have Jesus there for that very festival, and he is the promised deliverer. He's the ultimate purifier, the ultimate deliverer of the temple, walking in the temple, and they still don't see him. Verse 24 says they, so the Jews surrounded him, these Jewish leaders surrounded him, and they asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense if you are the Messiah? Tell us plainly. This almost gives you the picture of almost like bullies that kind of circle you, and it's just like, I heard that you're tough. Show me that you're tough. I heard that you said you were going to beat me in basketball. Show me. I'm kind of, this is triggering because I probably had these things happen. I heard that you're supposed to be this person. Show me. Prove it to me. You almost get this picture of like a middle school circle of kids who are just so angry that things were said that they just didn't agree with and it probably exposed them. So now they want to try to embarrass this person. That's what they're doing. Why? How long are you, are you going to keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly. Here's the reason why these questions are just so, they're mocking. These aren't questions that are rooted in genuine curiosity. These are questions that are rooted in willful obstinacy. You see, they have already been given tons of evidence about who Jesus claimed that he was. They've seen tons of it. We've talked a great deal about the scriptures, the, 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 how the Bible is replete with examples where the scriptures had been promising a Messiah all the way back in the Old Testament, promising a great deliverer, using this idea of the Christ, which means the anointed one, the one that would be chosen sovereignly to serve as the great and perfect rescuer, the great and perfect Messiah, Savior, the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. And these Jewish leaders who were they anticipating the Christ to be? They were looking for another Judas Maccabeus. They were looking for another leader to deliver them from their earthly enemies, from their physical enemies. Listen, when you are the captain of your own ship and you just look at God as a co-captain, you believe that you get to determine what direction your flight should take. You believe you get to determine what, how the Messiah should look. You get to define what your savior should look like, how they should talk what their stated goals should be. These Jewish leaders were looking in the wrong direction. The Messiah wasn't coming as this militant king ready to depose their earthly enemies. This Messiah was coming as a good shepherd, a shepherd that's willing to lay his life down 
for a sheep. And why? Not to defeat their physical enemies, not to defeat their earthly enemies, but to defeat their greatest enemy, sin and death. So the question they ask here is a, is a mocking one. They know good and well what Jesus has already said. They believe they know that he just isn't the Christ. So they only ask this question so that he can plainly say to them without any obscurity, without any lack of clarity, yes, I'm the Christ. That way they can kill him for blasphemy. So when you look at these next few verses, 25 through 30, you see what he says, I did tell you, and you don't believe. Jesus answered them, the works that I do in my father's name testify about me. I give them eternal life. I'm sorry, uh, but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. Now think about that. He's, he's making a very bold claim here. Twice we see Jesus mentioning their unbelief, which tells us that their lack of belief is an important aspect to his very response. Jesus is telling them that the issue that they have is not really a lack of evidence. The issue is hard and hard. Jesus already answered this question. They just don't believe. If they would only listen to the words that he's spoken to them, they would know the answer to the question that they're asking. See, the words and the proclamations that Jesus made should lead to their belief. We said this before, it's so great. All the things that Jesus declares, very powerful, but they would mean nothing if he didn't demonstrate them. It's the same with us. All the things that we declare mean nothing if we don't demonstrate. We can honk and say we love Jesus, and then completely prove that we don't care about his image bearers. Declaration must be met by demonstration. And Jesus has done both. Do you remember back in, in John chapter two, he turned water into wine. Remember when Jesus displayed this zeal for the house of the Lord by cleansing the, te the, the temple. Remember when Jesus graciously and miraculously healed the official's son from miles away. Or what about the time where he healed the invalid who was disabled for 38 years by telling him to just get up and walk? What about the time when he fed the large crowd of roughly about 15 to 20,000 people from two loaves of bread and I'm sorry, from one loaf uh, from five loaves of bread and two fish. Do you remember everybody being full? Do you remember the disciples who came home with baskets full of leftovers? Do you remember the disciples uh, with Jesus and they see Jesus walking on the water in the midst of the storm? Do you remember Jesus giving sight to the man who was born blind, accomplishing something no one had ever seen done before? John has already given us tons of examples. He's given us examples all the way through the first nine or 10 chapters of all the things that Jesus, and eventually we're gonna get down to chapter 20 where John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not even written in this book. He says, there are, there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of those things were to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What is he telling us? We have more than enough evidence about the things that Jesus actually demonstrated. These folks don't believe because there's a lack of proof. They fail to believe, they refuse to believe because of the unwillingness of their heart to submit and be humble and realize that this whole time that they thought they were the captain of their own ship, they should have known that they were passengers. They should have known that they have no say, no decision-making power over how salvation should work, over how the Messiah should work. They thought they were shepherds. When Jesus told them, if you really were sheep, you'd be saved. This question that they're asking is rooted in hard heartedness. That's the root of unbelief. More often than not, we've said this before, our inability or our refusal to believe is not because we just haven't seen enough evidence. A refusal to believe is because we refuse either A, to give up the throne. We want to stay captain. We're okay if we can have him as an advisor. But when Jesus has to sit on the throne of our own hearts, that's when we push away. Now, Jesus gives an even deeper reason for the unbelief as well. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, he says, but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. Jesus says that the reason why they don't believe is because they don't belong to Jesus. See, to believe is to belong. When we belong to him, we can't do anything else but respond with faith, with repentance, with humility with what it means to follow. See, the reason for their unbelief is because they don't belong to his flock. It's the same thing again. You can be in the same airport. We can go to Hartsfield Jackson right now. You can be in the airport with the pilot. Both of y'all walk in. 
You can even be at the same gate with the pilot. But guess what? Only one of them gets on the plane. If you don't have a ticket, you don't belong on the plane. And Jesus is making it clear. You were never a part of this flock, so you don't belong. And because you don't belong, you don't hear. It's interesting. When you get on a plane, uh, typically you get the, the, the flight attendants and they're kind of giving you, they're giving you uh, input. They're giving you information that corresponds to their area of responsibility right? They're going to tell you if uh, certain things happen, here's where your flotation device is, even though we're only going to be flying over land, but here's your flotation device. Uh, If you are in an emergency seat, here are the things you need to be capable of doing. Uh, They'll they'll let you know, hey, these are the beverage options that will be there. Here are the snack options that you may have or that you can purchase. That's their area of responsibility. Then when they're done, eventually you hear the voice that everybody knows, the captain, he or she begins to speak. And she may say, listen, we're going to be flying at this altitude. Who has the authority to determine what altitude they fly at? Not the attendant. She does. She's the pilot. Who has the authority to say at what speed they're going to be traveling? Not the attendant. She does. She's the pilot. You see, we know when we hear her voice, we realize, oh, that's the pilot's voice. She's the one that has the authority to determine how we get there, in what manner we get there. She's the one that determines that. She's the pilot. This is what Jesus is saying. You guys have formed, he's talking to these Jewish leaders. He's saying, you guys have thought that you were the pilot. You thought that you were the shepherd. You thought that you got to determine how things worked, how salvation should work. The problem is you never had a ticket to be on this plane, but you're acting like you're the pilot. That's why you don't believe. That's the reason why you struggle. And that's the reason why Jesus, when he answers, because you could look at this and go, well, the next logical question is, what does Jesus, what what do Jesus' sheep look like? And he makes it clear. He answers that. Sheep hear and follow after the good shepherd. Why? Because he intimately knows them. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This is just like the man in John 9. When God's sheep, uh, you see this God's sheep hear Jesus' call to come to him in belief and they respond in obedience. They know the voice of the good shepherd and they follow him no matter the cost. You think about times when people hear, people talk about when they came to faith and they hear the gospel message, not just this feel good message, but this idea that, oh my goodness, I have been walking in the wrong direction because I have functioned like I am the captain. I have functioned like I am the shepherd. And it took something to break me. It took something to make me aware of just how far off course I've gone because I thought I was the captain of my own ship. How far into sin I've traveled because I thought I was the captain of my own ship. And when I realized that I didn't have to create my own compass, I didn't have to create my own map reading tools, I didn't have to do that because all I have to do is follow the one who made me in order to recreate me to look like him. I now can lovingly follow and be changed and be fully changed. This is what, when people go there, they're going, man, I, I, all, I, all I had to bring to the table was just faith and belief. And it led to real obedience. That's how they respond in belief. The way you respond in believing in Jesus is by following him. We don't respond in believing by saying, I believe. We respond by following him in obedience. So this rejection of Jesus is proving that they don't belong to Jesus. So you might say, okay, big deal. Great. I mean, the Jews could have been, the Jewish leaders could have easily been like, all right, well, we don't belong to your little metaf- metaphorical kind of shepherd uh, group. We, we're not in your flock. We're not in your fold. You're using all these words. Fine, whatever. We're not one of them. What, what, what does that mean to us? Well, this is when he brings it really home. Verse 28, I give them his sheep. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You know what Jesus is saying? What we believe matters. It's not a flippant thing. It's not just a throwaway thing. What you believe about Jesus matters. It is quite literally a matter of life and death. What we believe about who Jesus is, what we believe about the claims that he makes has eternal implications. And Jesus says it's only those who belong to Jesus who are able to hear his call in order to come and believe and respond in obedience. Those are the ones who get eternal life. Those are the ones who are given eternal life. Eternal life is not something that we can earn. This is why seeing Jesus as a co-pilot is dangerous because what happens is I think I'm doing a lot of the earning 
And then when I get to the degree where I can earn no more, he can come in and fill in what's lacking. That actually would not be salvation by grace. It would not be salvation by faith alone. It would actually be by salva- salvation by faith and a lot of my really, really good navigation skills to the degree where I kind of lack some things. Now Jesus comes in. This is not something, Jesus doesn't work uh, with synergy with us. That's not how that works. Jesus actually works in a way and says, I'm going to be the one that does this. All you have to do is believe and I'm going to empower you to believe, but you believe. That is the only way that eternal, uh, that, that eternal life is given. We know this. Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith. And this, this faith is not your doing. It is the gift of God. Do you hear that? It is not your doing. It is not your flying. It is not your shepherding. It is not anything within you. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Logging flight hours is a lot of work. Learning how to read, a navigate, uh, to read navigation systems and, 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 and all kinds of um, uh, certain guides that you would have to use in order to fly a plane, instrumentation, that's work. But we don't actually do any real work in order to be able to receive eternal life. And why? He says, so that no one may boast. You do realize that if you thought that Jesus was your co-pilot, you still have a little bit of your flying ability you get to brag in. You still have some things you get to pat yourself on the back for. But Jesus says, no. Paul tells us in Ephesians, no. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ. We are are created in him for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does this mean? We have to understand that this new life And it's not just, yeah, I get to go to heaven. This idea of living, this kingdom mindset, living in a way that says I am am being reconciled to the God that made me, which means that my goals, my mindset, the way that I function, the things that I long for, those things have been completely changed or are being completely changed. And I have to remember that that thing that brings about change, that is a gift. I didn't earn it. I didn't fight for it. I didn't make it happen. It's not earned freely given. And then Jesus says, those to whom that has been freely given, they will never perish. The hope of eternal life does not rest on your shoulders. It rests on the shoulders of Jesus. He's the only one that's in the cockpit. We're just the passengers. So if your faith rests in Jesus, rest in the fact that what he says here, no one can snatch you from his hand. No one can snatch you from the plane. No one can snatch you from the field. Why? Because you're his. Look at verse 29. He says, not only will no one snatch them out of my hand, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Listen to this proclamation. Jesus is saying, not only am I declaring that you cannot be snatched out of my hand, but I'm telling you why that power exists. In the same way that you can't be snatched out of my hand, it correlates to the fact that you can't be snatched out of the Father's hand. And the reason why that matters is because we are one. What an incredible bold claim. Now keep in mind, when he says no one can snatch you out of his hand, you know who's included in no one? You. You can't snatch yourself out of the Father's hand either. I know people struggle with this kind of a doctrine because they're like, well, what are you saying? I can just go and do whatever I want. And you see, Paul talks about that. God forbid. That is not at all what we're saying. What we're saying is that someone who is truly the sheep of Jesus, if you are a sheep of Christ, if you are a passenger on the plane, then you persevere through and you continue to follow him. That's what happens. And he enables that to be the case. If you are truly his, there is never a time where you're plucked out, no matter what. So you know what that should do? That should create this incredible picture of showing just how much he loves us, just how much he knows us. This proclamation, everything that Jesus says and does is an embodiment of God the Father's will. Jesus and his Father are perfectly one in action. That means whatever Jesus does, the Father does. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. The strong grip of the Son reflects the strong grip of the Father. The strong grip of the father reflects the strong grip of the son. Two separate persons that are one in nature. That's the reason why John started with what? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word 
was God. No one can snatch anyone who belongs to Jesus out of Jesus' hand because the Father has given them to him. No one can steal that. No one can do that. So you think about this. Let me ask you this. Can the severity of the trials that you're going through right now, can they separate you from the love of God? In those things, Scripture says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's not a thing you can go through. That's the reason why when you read about different martyrs who have seen the risen Christ, who no matter what comes their way through horrible torturing, continue to follow Jesus. Why? Because they realize nothing will ever separate me from him. Nothing will ever separate me from his love. So this begs another question. Not just trials and tribulations. Can the severity of the sin that you're struggling with right now, can that separate you from Jesus? Listen, I don't know about you, but when there's ever any kind of besetting sin, any type of sin struggle, whether it's things that we do, things that we think, things that we don't do, things that we don't think, when you're made aware of that, we can easily go down this long uh, uh, pattern of, of shame and, and, and we feel a sense of condemnation. We feel like, well, what's the point? I mean, I've already done this. I must be separated from God now. You see, this is, this is the thing. Can anyone bring a charge against those that God has? No. Yes, it should bring real brokenness and it should bring uh, repentance and it should, me, it should bring real heart change. And we need to be doing that our entire life. But there is not a sin. There is nothing that can separate you. There is nothing, no charge that can be brought against you where God would say guilty. You know why? Not because of how well you fly not because of how well you lead, but because your sin has been dealt with viciously on the cross. The very sin that you're going to commit today, tomorrow, that you committed last year, that you committed 40 years ago, the things that you feel incredible pain or, or, or real sorrow for, and, and it's good for us to have real repentance and sadness, but we don't have to be overcome with shame. We don't have to be overcome with guilt because our sins have been dealt with. So we can repent. We can freely confess. Why do we hold on to things in our past? Because we're so afraid to bring them up. Because many times we still feel like we're going to be punished yet again. What salvation brings is the freedom to repent and the freedom to confess. The freedom to rest in the fact that nothing can separate me from Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who was at the right hand of the Father, who was interceding for us right now. So the sin that you committed, the sin that you feel bad about, Jesus is interceding for you right now. This is good news. This is why we call it the gospel, the good news. It's great news to know that I don't have to start faking. I don't have to make myself look like a shepherd. I don't have to make myself look like a pilot just to hide from all the sins that prove that I'm really not. I don't have to fake it anymore. I can trust that because he has died for me and I believe it and I follow him, I know for a fact that nothing's going to separate me from him. So he makes this proclamation and we see what he says in verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. Look at what happens. The folks see this. They, they hear what he says and they st they're ready to stone him. They heard Jesus loud and clear. There was no equivocation here. There was no uh, lack of clarity here. They know what he's doing. Jesus, by saying, I and the Father are one, Jesus is claiming to be God. I've said this before. Never let anybody tell you, listen, I've read the Bible through and through and nowhere in the scriptures do I see Jesus claiming to be God. It might be hard. It might be uncomfortable to talk about, but we have to say what the scriptures show us. It's clear that Jesus is making a claim to be God. They understand that that's the claim that he's making. So therefore, they are yet again ready to kill him. And at this point, Unlike before, when they were ready to stone him, he kind of did this incredible, cool thing where he kind of phased through and all of a sudden they're like, where'd Jesus go? And you just imagine this David Copperfield smoke bomb thing. I don't know how he did it, but it had to be pretty amazing. This time he doesn't do any of that. He actually deals with them head on. He doesn't flee this time. Instead, in verse 32, we see how he responds. They're ready to stone him and he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? And it's like he's saying, Oh, okay, yeah, your attempt to kill me. That makes total sense. Okay, let me guess. Are you mad that I selflessly gave sight to the blind? Oh, no, okay. Hmm. Maybe you're mad that I graciously fed the hungry uh, when they were in the wilderness where there was no other food around. How about that one? That's why you want to kill me? Oh, no, okay, not that one. Okay, 
Oh, you're mad about that time that I walked on water in order to help my disciples. That really got under your skin. No, okay. Oh, are you mad that I healed that centurion's son that whole time when nobody had ever seen anything like that happen? You're oh, you're mad about the time I helped that lame man walk. Ah, what was I thinking? Is that, that's why you want to kill me. Oh, no. Oh, you're mad because I was so zealous at the temple that time because I wanted to see the house of God purify the same way you guys want to celebrate. I actually wanted to purify the temple and keep people from being exploited and taken advantage of and making the house a den of robbers. You're mad because I was so zealous for God's kingdom. I see. Oh, no, you're not. Okay, not that. Oh, I see. You're mad about that time that I restored joy back to a banquet where there was a wedding going on. You're mad. You're angry because I made people happy again. That, that's why. When I turned water into wine. Oh, no? Okay. Then which work are we upset about? Give me a good reason for wanting to stone me. Not a single action that Jesus performed. There's not a thing that he did that would actually validate their unbelief. There, they, he said it. These are all good works from the Father. Listen, when you look at the life of Jesus... There are many times when I've sat down with people who are really trying to figure out who Jesus is, and we'll just go through the scriptures together. And I remember at one, at one point with one person saying, just weigh the life of Jesus, the works and the claims of Jesus. Let's just look at those themselves. These folks saw them actually happening. And so when you look at the works of Jesus and you see the things that he's done, there really is no good reason to reject Jesus. When you truly look at the historical work and the claims that he's made, there's no reason to not trust him unless our hearts are not changed. And so the Jews answer him. You look at verse 33 and they say, well, we're, we're not stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. What they're saying is that Jesus is guilty by trying to rob God of his glory. They think that he's guilty because they think he's taking away the honor that should be due to God. Why? Because he's making himself God, which is crazy because their accusation is the opposite of what's actually true, right? What we know is that Jesus is basically showing us, you don't, Jesus is showing, I am not an example of a man trying to become God. I'm actually the example of God who became a man. And we know that because we see it in Philippians 2. It tells us, although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, this was not an example of someone trying to ascend and become a God. This was an example of God condescending and becoming man in order to be able to die for men, mankind. So the reality is Jesus is God and God became man. And they're claiming that Jesus is man who's claiming to be God. They're blind to what is actually taking place in front of them. And so he answers, isn't it written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called those whom the word of God came to gods and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say you are blaspheming the one the father set apart and sent into the world? Because I said, I am the son of God. These, these passages all the way through, this can be hard to understand because in many ways, what we're seeing, they, they can be confusing and it's been confusing for a lot of different theologians to wrap their minds around. And so we kind of have to piece some things together. Number one, the frustration of the Jews are centered around Jesus saying that he's God. They claim that it's blasphemy for him, just a man, to elevate himself to the status of God. But Jesus ends up referencing Psalm 82. In Psalm 82, they know that very well. They know the scriptures. In that place, God calls men, these leaders, these leaders of Israel, he calls them gods, little g. He calls them gods. And then, so, and there's a whole lot behind that, but many people would say, and there's theologians that have different views, but many people would say there's a degree to which these men would function as gods. What, do, what, what would gods in some of the different religious views look, look like? They have the power and the authority to decree a thing and make it true. And so in Psalm, Jesus, you see God talking to these leaders, kind of saying, you all are gods or you guys are leaders. You guys have the authority that I've given you. So in any ways, by proxy, you guys are giving my words to the people. You are in many ways, little gods or little leaders, little authorities. So Jesus is saying, y'all read your Bible. You know, Psalm 82. You've never had a problem with anybody quoting uh, Psalm 82. You've read it yourself. You probably have it memorized. And you see the word gods being applied to mere men. 
Therefore, if it's okay to call men gods, then it's okay for God to set apart and send Jesus into the world as the son of God. In other words, if God can place the title little God on a created being, someone lesser than God, then why can God not do the same for the one who set apart, anointed the Christ and sent into the world? See, it's the father who sent the son and it's the son who's doing the works of the father. Jesus is not making himself God. He is God. And that's why Jesus turns their attention back to his works. Verse 37, you see what he starts to, the direction he goes in. For I'm not doing my father's works. Don't believe me, but if I'm doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way, you'll know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. When you really look at this and you see kind of where uh, Jesus is going here, he's basically saying, yeah, if you, you don't have to just believe me. Here he is looking at the, this opposition. He's looking at this incredible rejection. He continues to offer the same invitation, come and believe. Jesus is still showing them grace at this point. We need to know like, yes, I don't know what reasons you might have for not believing Jesus in certain areas of your life. You might believe for some things and then have a hard time holding on for others. Let me tell you, there is no greater grace on display than knowing that Jesus is still pursuing and he's still saying, I get it. I know why you're still stiff necked. I know why your heart is hardened here. I'm still offering you this invitation. I'm still showing you myself. That's how he invites us. It's not just, you know, this great party favor that we get that says, you know, RSVP, click yes or no. It's not that. It actually is more of the more that I reveal of myself to you is the very living invitation to you. I'm going to reveal things about myself that eventually will pierce your greatest need. It will satisfy your greatest need. And you will see this is where my Messiah is. This is where my shepherd is. This is where my pilot is. And so you see this grace on display. And even in the midst of this invitation, they still don't respond and believe. How do they respond? In many ways, the way we're prone to respond. They tragically want to arrest him. They want to see him killed. And we may not say, I want to kill Jesus, but in many ways, I want to kill the influence of his voice in my life. We may not say that I want Jesus to just be gone. I just want him gone out of this area of my life. And so that's really where they're going. They want to go after him. They want to uh, arrest him. Verse 39, they were trying again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. Finally, these last two verses. So he departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier and he remained there. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So here we are returning back to where it all began. We see the same place where John the Baptist had been doing his works, been doing this incredible part of his ministry, setting the way, paving the way for the Messiah to come. And now the Messiah has come where that ministry began. What do we know? We know that the crowds who had been watching John the Baptist, they saw incredible things. They saw incredible sermons he had given. They saw people repenting. They saw people baptizing in full anticipation of the Messiah to come, the Savior, the real Savior that they've been longing for. And now they're looking at what Jesus is doing. They see him saying he is the Christ. They remember John the Baptist talking about the Christ was coming. Jesus has already created this major stir over in Jerusalem. Now he's going over to where John the Baptist started his ministry. And those people are going, oh, wow, I can make the connection. I see it. Everything John said about this man is true. And the scripture says, and many believed in him there. You see, they remembered what he said. They saw the works that he did and they believed. They remembered what he said. They saw the works that he did and they believed. So let me close in asking you this. Do you believe Jesus' words to be true? Do you believe that Jesus is truly the Messiah, truly the Christ, truly the anointed one? Do you believe that he truly is the captain, not a captain, the single captain of the plane? Do you believe that he is the shepherd that we follow? If yes, then you have eternal life and you have the kingdom in your heart and you are living that out. It's hard, it's difficult, we do that in community. If not, consider the words that Jesus says here. If Jesus is not doing the works of God, then don't believe. But if he is, then come and believe. It was the Father's will to send his son into the world to live the life that we could not live, die the death we should have died, and rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. Listen, we don't know 
what it takes. There's this incredible connection that we can't really figure out about God's sovereignty and how he turns hearts and how he softens hearts and the still responsibility we have to respond and believe. Don't know where his sovereignty and our will meets and ends. We just know they're both there. But at the end of the day, we're still called to respond in belief. If you have and you believe these words to be true, then what do we do? We continue in, in the example of Jesus here. We live out this life. What did he say we do? We love God and we love one another. And we now have the power to do that imperfectly, but we know how to do that now. And we do that while, while practicing faith and repentance with each other. We don't do it so that we can have a better bumper sticker. We don't do it so that we can brag. We don't do that so that we can display our righteousness to other people. We do that because the very Savior who rescued us, who ransomed us, who remade us, we're saying, I just want to look like my shepherd. I want to look like my captain. If he's the co-pilot, then you're asking him to look like you. If he's the only pilot, then you are endeavoring to look like him. All we can do is be faithful each and every day by the power of his spirit. My prayer is that we indeed would be able to say, there is no other co-pilot. Jesus is the pilot. Jesus is the shepherd. And it is only by his grace and his mercy that we've been invited, but we stand faithfully, we stand boldly, and we are excited that he has promised to finish what it is that he has started. So let's pray together. Let's be thankful together as we remember exactly who Jesus is. Father, thank you for the ways that you continue to show us who you are, the ways, Jesus, that you show us exactly what it means to be a shepherd. And yet, God, there are ways in which we try to shepherd ourselves. There are ways in which we try to lead ourselves. There are ways in which we struggle with belief. There are ways in which our heart is still cold and is still a stone. And God, we need you to remake that. So God, I pray that even in every one of our hearts, Areas of unbelief. God, if, I, if we really think about it, what sanctification is doing is carving away these areas of unbelief. Every area that we struggle, every area that we sin is an area of unbelief. So God, begin to carve those things away, chip those things away, burn those things away. And God, I pray that you would do that in such a way that we not be braggadocious, that we would not be, have a, a big chest and we would be bragging about it. But Lord, we are humbled by the fact that only you could do that work in us. And that's why we continue to believe, continue to repent, continue to long for you to finish what you started. Thank you, Jesus, the good shepherd. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's receive this benediction from God, this final blessing. We love to say, we, we know that the scripture says that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He gets the final word. Why? Because he's the captain. He's the pilot. He's the shepherd. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's sheep, all of his people, all of his family say together, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.